Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, hey, Glenn, welcome back. Well, we're starting to crank these out now, aren't we? We've got a couple here <laughs> recorded in the same week. I'm excited about that. I'm not trying to get ahead of ourselves here, but excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, if you're able to, we definitely appreciate any contribution you can make to our little podcast experiment here. Patreon.com slash Double Podcast is how you would go and support the show. Even a dollar a month definitely helps out for the hosting, for the our website, for all these episodes, etc. And uh, you know, pretty easy to do. So thanks to all of our patrons, and uh, you know, please consider that to support us. All right, Glenn, I think you have another Where in the World segment ready for us. I do, and this one's going to be a little trickier, Eric. So I'm going to give you. Jeez, a, I got the a, last one wrong. No, okay, here we go. I'm going to help you narrow it down a little okay. bit here. All right. So this country uses Cyrillic alphabet, and they were actually one of the f- the first countries in the European Union to introduce Cyrillic as an official language. Oh boy. Okay. Or I should say, official alphabet slash language. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So it narrows things down a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And then they have one of the tallest mountains in the Balkans because it's a Balkan country called the Rila, R-I-L-A, mountain. Okay. I would have trouble narrowing it down just on that myself. So I get it. Next one is that they have one of the most famous and oldest treasures that was discovered in that country on an archaeological dig. In fact, they're famous for a number of archaeological sites. But it's called the Varna Necropolis treasure that dates back to 4500 B.C., Okay. Mm-hmm. 85% of the world's rose oil comes from this country, and it's used by many European perfumery makers, per- perfumeries, if you will. Okay. Yeah. That, that might be the one little trivia clue that would have been helpful. Maybe another one is that Mark Zuckerberg's grandfather apparently comes from this country. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I know. I, I told you this would be a tricky one. They have bacteria in a yogurt there that's only found in this country. So it's a unique bacteria. And then finally, they have been in many battles over the centuries, but they've never lost a flag. They've actually never lost a single flag in a single battle. Thought that was kind of interesting. Any ideas? Want to take a stab in the dark? I think I'm just going to pick something in the middle of the Balkans, just Croatia. Okay, not close, but no. No, okay. It is Bulgaria. And the reason that I've chosen Bulgaria is because we do have a guest on today from the International Association of Forensic Science Conference that we've been having a series of guests on and the IAFs. And just much like the Olympics, every three years it rotates around to different countries. They have a like a committee that decides where the next one is. The last one was in Sydney, Australia, but the next one is in Sofia, Bulgaria. So that's why I chose Bulgaria today. That was a tough one. I I wouldn't have gotten that one. At best, I might have guessed Romania, but the Cyrillic alphabet, for some people who maybe know that area or that region of Europe, might have guessed that part of it. Yeah, I couldn't figure out exactly where it switches over from the the Roman to the Cyrillic alphabet. 
and still be considered in the European Union. Exactly, that's, exactly. That's the, that's the tricky part. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully then, I mean, maybe for people that are traveling to that next conference, you know, in that part of Europe, just down the road in Croatia is Havar, which is just off the coast in the sea there, which is the hometown of Juan Vucetic. I didn't know that. And uh, I believe I've, a friend of mine or a colleague of mine went in there, traveled through there and, and noticed and saw that there's a, a whole like museum that they've set up for him. So one Vucetich, you know, big name in fingerprints back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, setting up kind of the whole South American system, kind of the, the Henry of South America. Right. I guess I had always assumed he was Brazilian. I didn't realize that he had emigrated from Croatia. I don't think it was Croatia at the time, but no. <laughs> it's still that, that town, which is now in Croatia. All right. Well, Glenn, let's get our guests here officially introduced from Australia again, from Western Sydney University. Caitlin Ruff, we're here. welcome to the Double Loop Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So I had the pleasure of seeing and meeting Caitlin at the IAFS, and she gave a presentation that I was, well, personally ecstatic to see, Yes, <laughs> but it deals with a bloody finger marks and such. And I was just really impressed with the, the work and the research. And I have a couple of comments when we get to it. But for all of our guests, Caitlin, I'm sure Eric had given you a little bit of forewarning. We'd like to know how you got into this pathway. Like, why did you choose forensic science? And obviously, you're still a student. So why did you choose forensic science as a degree and your research? If you would tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself and why you made that choice? So I found that I was very interested in science when I got to about year 12. I just really liked the black and white aspect to it. And then to add in my little love of true crime and that kind of realm, I found that forensic science was actually a degree. And so I applied for it and I got in and I was just very open to pretty much everything in it. I just wanted to absorb all of it. And so when I was progressing, I found that I was really interested in research and just finding out new things. So then when I went to my university to ask for a project to do what we have here, a master of research, which is that middle ground between your bachelor's and your PhD, they said that there was a project looking at bloody fingerprints and that this was a very niche area that hasn't had a lot of research but is really needed in casework and especially in the court setting so I thought it'd be a very good challenge to kind of get into that I really did like fingerprints and looking at patterns and that stuff so I just thought I'd give it a go and the challenge was definitely there <laughs> okay and was there someone at the university who knew that this was an issue in the field of fingerprints that there was, I would say, minimal research on the aspects of bloody fingerprints and, and what we call activity level or mechanisms of deposition. Well, obviously, a lot of the university work academics are still either practitioners in the field or were. So they do have their contact are able to reach out and just kind of know where the gaps are based on their own experiences as well. Sure. OK, well. Tell you what, why don't you run us through just an overview of the research that you've done and presented, and then we'll dig into a few things. But let's at least kind of lay out what the basic research structure was and what it was you're were, you were looking at. So pretty much I started looking at the very broad idea of bloody finger marks and 
when I was doing my research, was looking at the differences potentially between genuine and faux. However, as I started to dig in more, I realized that this project was much bigger than what I thought it was going to be. And the time. Sorry, you'll have to explain what faux blood prints are. Believe it or not, not everybody knows. <laughs> So faux bloody finger marks are essentially a bloody finger mark that is formed without the finger and blood coming into contact with each other. So the idea behind it is that there is a pre-existing latent finger mark on the surface and the blood essentially enhances it by covering that finger mark, which is then results in your bloody finger mark that you see. So yeah, as I was looking at it, I realized it was so much bigger than the time frame that I had as you only have about 12 months to do this type of project, to do these projects. So I narrowed down a little bit more to just focusing on faux bloody finger marks to kind of see their formation and what actually occurs when the blood interacts with these latent finger marks. So I decided to start looking at different blood stain pattern mechanisms defined by swig stain to see how these different depositions can actually impact a resulting finger mark. So then as a quick summary, someone could handle an object. Let's say they have legitimate access to a place. They've either lived there or they've visited that place or whatever that might be. Maybe they're in that vehicle. They own that vehicle, something like that. They've touched it at some point in time. They left behind a latent print. They left behind some residue, sweats and oils and other things on that surface. And at some point later, blood in some sort of violent mechanism, maybe splashes or drips or in some way spatters on top of the residue, and in some way it interacts with, enhances, or visualizes the latent print on the surface. Now, that's not normally how that would happen. Normally, you'd have to visualize the latent print residue with chemicals or powders or things like that, but somehow the blood is interacting with the residue. And in any of your research, were you ever able to determine or even look at why or how there is an interaction there in the first place? So what I kind of was like focusing on was what actually that moment that the blood hits that latent finger mark, what actually occurs. And a lot of it I put down to the the differences in the composition between the blood and the finger mark residue as I use charge or sebaceous rich finger marks. And so I put it down a lot to the that difference between the compositions and found that a lot of the interactions between the blood and the finger marks were hydrophobic interactions that the blood was repelling a lot from the finger mark. And the finger mark that you'd see at the end is really blood getting stuck between the ridges mm. into, into the valleys more as it does, isn't able to escape. And that was what really made that finger mark develop, essentially. Right. So if you had a, a sebaceous or oily type of print on a surface and you had blood come in contact with it, blood being more polar in substance against an oily substance would have this almost magnetic repulsion effect where it would just be repelled away from the oily ridges. And what you were seeing was, wasn't actually being repelled, it was just being redistributed amongst the spaces between the ridges, the furrows, and it was just being redistributed in those little areas where there wasn't sebaceous, oily material. Is that another way of saying it yeah because it, it depended on the mechanism that i used for because when i did swipe where i swiped blood over the finger mark you would actually see the blood instantly go from the middle to the edges 
Mm. Okay. So there was that initial movement of the blood away from the finger mark. But then, yes, when the blood was within the like within the pattern, yeah, it was a bit more of a redistribution, just trying to get away from those ridges. The oil and water effect. We have yeah. a lot of lay listeners too, so trying to explain it, in, you know, in in lay people's terms. Sorry. Yeah, no. That, I mean, you're obviously you're a chemist. So you have a chemistry background, so it makes sense. I saw in your introduction that you had mentioned a specific case, or you know, the this type of research, you know, may be able to provide evidentiary value, and that's the Catherine Woods case. Is there anything you can share about uh, any details of that case? I found that case while I was doing my research. In a paper, I think it was Glenn's paper with Nicole Prosco. And I think I found a mention of that case. And then I just yes. dull, like, yeah, delved a little bit more into it to find out a bit more of what that case was about. And essentially what I found was it was like the ex-boyfriend or the boyfriend. There was a finger mark, a bloody finger mark found at her apartment and the whole argument was he was there for a legitimate reason as he was the boyfriend and that the blood was deposited after as opposed to him like having blood on his hands or had the blood on the surface and him putting his finger on the wall for example so to have that knowledge to be able to determine how these bloody finger marks formed would definitely strengthen probative value yeah yeah so to have this research and knowledge can increase the value of the testimonies that our experts can give in answering those questions of like what came first, essentially, kind of like the chicken or the egg, what came first in this scenario? Right, the blood or the finger. Because it's a yeah. very different scenario if the blood's on the finger and then touches the surface or the blood's on the surface and the finger touches the bloody surface. Or the finger touches the surface and then later, like Glenn was saying, the blood also then goes on top of the, the print on the surface. So it's, yeah. yeah. And uh, I love the the graphics that you have here in the, I mean, it's a podcast, so it's probably, <laughs> it, it's hard to describe, but it's a great series of just, you know, showing the difference between these three different scenarios. Yes, they are uh, great graphics. Yeah. And, and in that case, Eric, I also had the chance to read those transcripts in that case and it was really interesting because you had three different people talking about the same evidence. You had the investigator who was a police officer. You had the processing technician who was in a lab and hadn't gone to the scene. And then you had the comparative examiner. And the language of everybody was quite different. It was a blood print, but people kept referring to it as either a latent print or a blood print or a patent print. And there was a lot of different language and there was some confusion whether or not ultimately because people were calling it a latent print and kept saying the latent print interacted with the dye stain. So then it became a question of whether or not, well, was it actually a latent print or was it a latent print that had interacted with blood in some way? So it actually caused a bit of confusion about the nature of it during that case. That was actually a very important part of defense's argument. And they kept asking, well, could blood interact in some way with it? Could it spatter on top of that residue and interact with it? And at the time, the research hadn't been done. And so no one really knew. And as Caitlin pointed out, my intern at the time, Nicole Praska, and I had done some research using that case as an example. And were able to show that, in fact, they can interact. Although I've got a couple of follow-up questions here for Caitlin in just a second. 
But what I really liked about Caitlin's research was that halfway around the world, on the other side of the planet, there's another independent researcher who was able to basically confirm a lot of the observations that Nicole and I had made. And that was what I, I joked with Caitlin was, now we feel like we're real scientists. Someone repeated our research. <laughs> it was repeatable. And then it, it takes on another level of, okay, this is a real scientific you know, project. So, Caitlin, what did you observe about how often this type of thing happened? How often were you able to get an interaction between the blood and the latent print previously on the surface? So, I noticed that I did get interactions majority of the time. Whether I got a, a finger mark out of like a use a usable finger mark out of it was a completely different question. But I did notice that I got more interaction out of the blood and the secretions when the blood was moving in mm. comparison to stagnant blood. So when I did methods like drip and pull, there was not a lot of interaction with the, the latent finger mark and the blood compared to when I would flow it over a print. So I did notice that it did depend on the mechanism how often I got some sort of interaction. But it did happen a lot. There was interactions most of the time. Then when I looked into that, then we kind of looked at was the result what we would deem a usable finger mark to sure. actually put, like to examine and use. So yeah, it did happen. Interactions did occur, but whether that resulted in something that was used was the next question. Okay. So because you tried different blood spatter mechanisms, and you did be swipes and you did pools and such. Which of the mechanisms was least likely to really develop kind of usable or most importantly by an examiner, maybe even mistakable blood interaction ridge detail? Faux, faux blood prints, if you will. Yeah, drip and pool did not produce. You wouldn't really be able to see anything. You wouldn't. I don't think you would even look twice, really, because there wasn't a lot there. Spatter was probably the next one as it would only sometimes, like it wouldn't produce a full finger mark just due to the nature of the mechanism. So it just spatters across a wall or a surface. So there would be little points that you would get potentially some ridge detail. But again, it wasn't a lot. The blood didn't entirely cover the impression. Yeah, whether it hit a ridge or not was completely random. There was occasionally I would get one print that would come out with some decent ridge detail in small section. But yeah, again, it comes down to does it hit? If it doesn't hit or if the spatter it was a bit too fine, that obviously it wasn't a lot of blood, it wouldn't really enhance or develop your latent finger marks in ways compared to such as flow where the idea would be a lot of blood is flowing over that surface, which I did see that the blood would either go around the highly sebaceous oily finger mark or it would go through and then continue on. And so you would see essentially kind of voids in that flow just due to the nature of the lake. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And as a side note, in the Catherine Woods case, the mechanism of blood that was near that area was actually either spattered blood, there were, you know, tiny blood spatters, or some arterial spurt 
although it tended to be mostly spatters in that area, possibly even cast off. So you're dealing with, as you're talking about, not dense blood stains, but rather fairly dispersed, you know, random blood stains, small stains that dispersed over the wall that wouldn't necessarily have covered the entire impression. Yeah, and that's why we were looking, that's why we, that's why I said to my supervisors to continue down this spatter route. When we did initial tests, it didn't obviously produce. There was only like one or two out of the 36 prints I created that had some sort of reach detail. But again, I did think I was like, this is definitely going to be a mechanism that is consistently going to be present in casework. So to not look at it would right. just not make sense. Did you do any dye staining as well? Because that was another aspect of the paper with Nicole and I was that we wanted to see what would happen after a dye stain was applied and those interactions. Did you ever get a chance to do that? Yeah, no. So we did So we did talk about doing that. Uh, we did talk about when we were looking at your initial paper. And we didn't have, first of all, yeah, time was definitely of the essence with this project. But we did just want to look a little bit more at... Just the base. What can you sure. see with just blood and a finger mark? And what sure. kind of comes out of that? The most enhancement that I did was look under 415 nanometers to mm -hmm. increase that contrast just so I could get a better idea of what's occurring. But yeah, we just kind of wanted to see what that base was and just see what comes out of these without any additional stains or dyes. Sure. And you guys also used a cast scale, right, to grade these impressions as well. Our previous episode just discuss the cast scale. So here's another opportunity to show how researchers are using it. How did you guys apply that scale? Why did you apply it? So we applied and as it was, we weren't really comparing things. So we weren't really comparing methods. So other scales were used that were used with a bit more of a comparison method to compare different mm -hmm. enhancement techniques and stuff. And we just kind of wanted to see what kind of finger mark would we get out of this? So we used the cast grade because it was a very straightforward zero meant you got nothing. And then as it went up to one, two, three, and four, there was just more and more definable ridge detail that you could see. And there was like contrast that you could see. So we looked at it as if you got anything above a two, so two, three, and four, it was a method that if you were to find it, it would definitely be usable. But then because it's usable, there may be some potential questions as to how it came about. So there, that's why we used the cast grade scale because it was, it definitely looked at kind of what we were looking at. Is there ridge detail? How much ridge detail did we get? But you weren't assessing the latent print residue, right? Just the areas that were interacting with the blood. That's just the portion that was being evaluated by the cast scale. Is that fair? Yeah, so it got a little bit difficult. So in my first part of my research, I it was my preliminary conditions test, I guess you could put it as. So I did different secretion types. So I did what would be like ecrine. So you just clean hands and just whatever's on your, like what comes out of your hands. Did ecrine prints, natural, so whatever was just on the hands at the time of deposition and the charged oily prints. And then I did all the blood stain mechanisms on that. And I used ceramic tiles for that. So that was when the 415 nanometers came in. So I was really just trying to assess what com conditions was most likely to form bloody finger marks that could be used. So okay. when we did the cast grades for that, it was just, it was the 415 nanometer images that I used. 
So yeah, really what you saw was anything that was blood, essentially. But then in the second part, when I was video recording the finger marks, I used glass. And that was where it did start to get a little bit difficult because I even had that question, like, because of the way the images were taken, you could see the blood and the latent. So it did get a little bit difficult in that sense. But then on the other hand, a lot more of that second part was to see what happened. The cast grading was just to kind of see if there was a bit of a decrease in the quality of the print from the moment that the blood was on there to the drying. But yeah, a lot more of it was just to see the interactions. Yeah. But yeah, it was definitely something to keep in mind when we were cast grading. Like, am I looking at just the blood part or am I looking at the whole but then again those different substrates did kind of open up more questions of how does different substrates impact what we see yeah for sure that's actually that's exactly the paper nicole and i are working on right now is exactly exploring how surfaces are involved in this which they appear to have a pretty big role yeah and a feeling they would especially from based on my two different ones that i used i did see differences already and that's what made me think of that question yeah so, Caitlin, what would you say to either listeners or readers eventually of this research and people who follow this research? Any recommendations to people who attend crime scenes and how to treat these or how to evaluate these? Any thoughts or helpful advice for those that might encounter these sorts of impressions at crime scenes? So, I am nowhere near an expert in any of this, but... Looking at what I found, I did notice that there wasn't necessarily a decrease in bloody finger mark quality once it was dry. So I don't know how, like, I feel like this may help crime scene investigators a little bit in the sense that to photograph it and get the best image, you potentially may not have to rush and do that. You find it, you identify it. From what I've gathered, once it's set, it's essentially set, unless obviously something really extravagant happens, like weather or something. But yeah, throughout my research, I I did do a timeline. So I initially deposited the print, I deposited the blood, and then half an hour post-deposition and an hour post-deposition, I noticed that there was very minimal change in that being a mark quality based on our assessment. Right. So I guess like you can essentially photograph it at the beginning or at the end. And I find that there was not very much difference. So you could still get a good finger mark out of the image, whether you photograph it in the beginning or the end. However, definitely a lot more research needs to be done with that. As my finger marks were only aged 24 hours, add that onto like different ages and stuff like that. There, There's a lot more questions, a lot more questions that definitely need to be answered before we can definitely say this is the best way to approach these. The finger marks that were left behind, the sebaceous ones, you know, to interact with blood, are you saying that you had only left them for 24 hours at most? So they were relatively fresh prints? Yes. Okay. Yes, they're relatively fresh. I pretty much got my donors to donate the day before, and then I would take them the next day and do my analysis on them. I definitely am aware that was a limitation in my research. With more time, I definitely would have wanted to dive deeper into the age finger mark realm that was definitely a question that was posed very early on how does the age impact it but yeah there's definitely so many avenues that this project kind of opened up because then we still you still have that comparison so the concept of video recording what happened when though like when that deposition hit like when that the bloody finger mark is deposited 
to take that and then compare them to what we deem as genuine bloody finger marks, so blood on the finger, blood on the surface, to compare all those three scenarios as a video would definitely be an interesting project. Right. One thing that we recommend to students or listeners who might be at crime scenes and encounter these sorts of impressions is, is, as you said, the photography is pretty important. And once the print is fairly set, you don't have to really worry that much about it. But the photography, especially before and then after any dye stain processing, and, and that's sometimes we see, well, I see one of two things some, as a problem sometimes coming back from crime scenes. Either they never apply the dye stain at all, and they only took photographs of just the bloody ridge detail, which I think is a mistake in, in, in a lot of cases to not apply the dye stain and see what could be there. Effectively, it's like saying, well, I see these visible uh, impressions. Why would I look for latent prints? Because, well, you can have, you know, invisible trace amounts of blood that can react with the dye stain. So I always thought it was important to do photography before the dye stain and then make sure you apply the dye stain. And sometimes we would only see one set of photographs or the other or dye stain never applied. And, you know, that was for us the simplest of recommendations because we did generally find that the appearance of a faux blood print, I'm saying F-A-U-X, the French faux, false blood print that you described, that visually they look very different from a genuine blood print. A genuine blood print looks like you've got pooling of blood, you've got uh, artifacts that you would normally expect when you deposit ridge detail in a liquid. You have all the appearance of what we call the genuine blood print because of the liquid nature. Whereas with a faux blood print, it looks like a latent print. It looks like that. You've got your residue edges. You've got your typical shape and contours of ridges from the residue. And it, then it looks like blood either is on top of it, turning the ridges either red or, as again, as you noted, sometimes being redistributed between into the furrows, giving you the shapes of the ridges by showing you the contour of the furrows, like a negative outline of it. I mean, those are the two things that we really saw was that photography really mattered and that generally an examiner could tell the difference. Did you find that you even, as you're learning this discipline and learning about friction ridges, did you find that you could easily tell the difference between a genuine and a faux blood print? I thought it was straightforward. And then I started getting into it a little bit. And I think the one that really stuck out to me the most was my swipe mechanism because mm. the amount of blood that would be put on there and then the blood moving from the inside to the out would sure. create that void that we looked at and thought that could potentially be mistaken for someone touching a blood-covered surface. And leaving like a negative impression almost in a pool of blood. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at the image right now. I, I see your point. Yeah. And the only light differences that we found was that there were these very faint lines across the figure mark pattern that indicated that something moved across it yeah but then again like that might not happen all the time we did start to see the lines blur a little bit sometimes it sure. was very obvious like yeah you can see the blood flowed over a print but because there wasn't a lot of pooling around the edges so then you didn't have that question of potential pressure but the transfer, the swipe transfer definitely blurred those lines a little bit. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, that's uh, I, I, I love to find a way for listeners to get a look at this image 
maybe is this a is this presentation something we can make available through our website or a link or something? So not at the moment. I am in pre-publication of this work. Ah, so okay. I am writing up this work to publish. So at the moment, Understood. just kind of keep everything in. And then once I publish it, then obviously it'll be out there for everyone to see. Yeah. Our listeners have an active imagination. They can, they can fantasize about what this fingerprint looks like. Well, those, <laughs> I mean, look, I think I'm looking at this, the right image, but it almost looks like those swipes that Kate was talking about could be mistaken for... There's something else coming in contact with a a latent after it's been deposited and dried, or even the kind of swipes you would see from from someone at the crime scene trying to process the print. You know, like if powder was placed upon it, for example. If powder was placed upon this, would that be a way you would, you might interpret those lines that are going through the print? Well, Eric, the image you're looking at, it was a different one I was looking at, but yes, the one you're looking at, I can totally see what you mean. That if I was at a scene, I might even wonder if someone did not, as you said, apply white powder to this because you can almost see that the ridges have a grayish tone to them. Yeah. And then there's all these streaks through that you might even expect if you had uh, you know, a brush or something that had disturbed the impression. So I, I can see what you're talking about in that image if it had been powdered. So, yes, I, I think as Caitlin said, it just... All of this just complicates things, and we have to be a little bit careful about talking about the deposition mechanisms. In general, if there's a, a print and blood, it's it's not super straightforward to tell which came first. Uh, blood was on the finger or on the surface or on the surface before or after the print was applied. Uh, in some cases, yes, in some I agree. Ca- there's... In general, there can be some indication as to which of those three scenarios you're dealing with. Uh, it is definitely not easy to uh, to sort that out, and it can get... Um, Without proper documentation of the scene, it can get very complicated because at least photography before, after, during processing can assist in that. I, that part I would agree with. So, Caitlin, what, what's, what are you looking to do next with the... Uh, with this research, I mean, you mentioned publishing it here. Uh, everyone can get you know a clear look at uh, what you've done so far. But what do you think is the next steps in general for this uh, question overall? I think the next steps would definitely be if you're looking at just bows, bow bloody finger marks. Definitely looking more into the age of the finger mark themselves and seeing if there's a difference in interactions, as that would also help that potential question of was it like if it's very fresh what would it look like compared to if it was very if it was like a week old if there's any differences in that i also my research was done with defibrinated horse blood so the next step would definitely be to re to do this research with human blood to see the differences in how that blood interacts because I know it would definitely look different as I had defibrinated, didn't coagulate, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I would definitely want to see results using human blood to, like, the best ability of, like, simulating a crime scene scenario. Sure. You know, we did some of that too, and typically because you're dealing with such small amounts of blood – 
that you, the stains would usually dry before there'd be any chance to coagulate because you usually get the coagulation and it's more apparent with larger pools of blood. That's where you begin to see the separation and the coagulation. So we notice that because you're typically dealing with 50, 100 microliters to a drop or two, that usually the coagulation part of it, the fibrogen, that aspect of it, didn't really seem to matter that much because you're often getting drying times that were so fast. Mm -hmm. just, just something we had observed. So that might not make yeah. that much of a difference. Because I used a fair amount of blood in mine. Uh, sure. Like, I, I used a little bit more. So it took about, I think, about an hour. It took probably about a half an hour to dry my one. Yeah. Depending on how much blood it was. Depending on the mechanism especially. The flow ones used a lot more. Like, Good point. I used a little bit more blood. So... But, yeah, to really think about, like, crime scene things, there might not be a lot of blood. It depending, it, again, depending yeah. on the crime, the, on the crime as well. But I did notice that with the pools, there was, once I disturbed the pool, mm -hmm. there was really nice ridge detail underneath the pool, which was just a lucky find. But yeah. it was definitely something really interesting to see because there may still be something underneath, even if the blood's completely encapsulated. The finger mark. Yeah, Eric, I don't know if, if you had a chance to see these images, but it was, it was something that stood out to me. It was sort of like the blood would sit on top of a latent print and form a shell around it, almost like a like an ice cream candy shell. And then when you and they would look all solid. And then if you just chipped away the blood because it would flake off eventually, Caitlin was finding that there was actually this reactive ridge detail below the surface as you would flake away the blood from this pool sitting on top of latent print residue. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely looking through all these images, you're trying to kind of imagine, okay, how is the blood interacting with this print and like why is it doing this versus that? Where, I don't know, I guess I would expect more like the ridges where there's residue to be where... I know you get this kind of like oily interaction with the blood then covering as more watery and then this, you know, the, yeah. the difference, but it's almost like the entirety of the print has a, an oily aspect, regardless if it's ridges or furrows. It's hard to explain, but it, that's definitely not what I was expecting to see. Do you think it's because, I mean, either of you, do you think it's because really when, a, when an impression is left, there is this kind of oily residue left across the entirety of the impression, but it's just that the ridges have more so of this residue. There's still some there, but just less so in the furrows. Yeah, that that does make sense. Like, yeah, you would think that there would probably still be some sort of residue. When you think about someone pushing down, like depositing a print, it, would, it does make sense that there would probably be some sort of residue like seeping in to the furrows in some sort of aspect. I can't imagine it'd be so clean cut. I guess the other side of it is the touch could be more of a takeaway of what's on the surface. And then now that there's a, you know, you've left an impression, but there's also now a void of what was there, or what is there on the entirety of the surface, but not now there where the impression is. And that now is also you know, causing a difference in how the blood uh, flows or appears or interacts with the edges of the latent print. It's quite possible. I don't know that I ever saw it. I, I really only saw two different things, and Caitlin's research had one of them, which was 
you have right you have sebaceous material oily stuff on your ridges you transfer that to the surface and now you've got ridges that are oily and in the furrows you have either less of it and, or maybe there wasn't enough contact or whatever and so it repels i mean that's it, hydrophobic this reaction that pushes the blood almost away from the ridge and redistributes it into the furrows. So it basically creates these negative images because you've got lots of little blood redistributed into the furrows because that's not where the waxy material has built up. And that's it's a theoretical. I mean, that's my take on it. That's my guess. I would like for someone to research that and test that's what's happening. But that would be my, my first guess. And that explains a lot of her images because they're all furrow what I would call furrow detail in in many of her images. But that wasn't the only thing we saw. We also saw occasionally blood would land on a ridge and then something on that ridge. And it would only happen like 1 in 20, 1 in 30, 1 in 40 impressions. But something on that ridge would then discolor red with the blood and interact with the blood. So it wasn't a furrow reaction. It was something on the ridge. We saw both of these two but the most common one is the one Caitlin's referring to where it almost gets pushed into that furrow space because there's less waxy residue there. That's two different mechanisms, two different things, and neither of them have been confirmed. They're just, I guess, what we would call qualitative observations. Looking at the, the images on slide 11, I know everyone can't see this, but I mean, looking here, it seems to me that the... That's the second mechanism I described there. Well, to, it, well, to me, this looks like the ridges are now... Yes, correct. Yeah, okay. Right. So, yeah. Something so, on the ridge is interacting with the blood. The, the furrows seem to be the, you know, ground-ish yeah. color, but the, right. the ridges themselves, uh, part of the ridge that is just ridge on a surface, you know, it doesn't look any different before or after the blood, but then other parts where it looks like the ridge residue has just soaked up the blood and has become extra bright. Exactly. In slide 12, just at the tip of that impression. Just at the tip. Just the tip. But other parts, there's, yeah, other parts, it, it's, uh, yeah, that's so weird. And blood's weird, man. Yeah. If you go to slide 8, uh, you don't have any of that, and it's all between the ridges and just in the furrow right. detail area. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's these two different things that are happening, but I don't know why is it happening in those slides like 11 and 12 in just certain regions of the ridge, but not the other ridges. Why is that? Caitlin, answer that question. Why is it that way? I don't know. That was what I was asking myself. I have no idea why it works like that. Because, yeah, when we started this and I was getting the results, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's going to be in the furrows. And then when I did the second part, which was in the later slides, I was like, it's coating the ridges now, and now I don't know what's going right. on. Yeah. Della Wilkinson, who we've had on the podcast before, she proposed that there's some contaminant that could be on the hand, could be makeup, it could be food, it could be something, secretion, down product, something, something on the hand that might just simply mm -hmm. react with blood. It messes the proteins in the blood, might give some active sites for, for proteins. And I, it could be as simple as that. And, I, and obviously that's going to be a very different mechanism than the hydrophobic redistribution blood that pushes it into the furrows. So I, I just – I have to imagine that there's probably two different things going on here 
but I don't know really for sure the cause of either or if they're related. It just really goes to show, you know, what we've said for a while. You know, if, if you're interested in forensic science and in doing research into unanswered questions, man, Leighton Prince is the place to be. Because we have questions that need... I totally agree. ...that need research, that need answers to better explain what's going on. And, you know sussing out those the differences between these two mechanisms so that we might be able to potentially it's still not even clear if we could at some point distinguish between these two activity level propositions well it's a good segue because i think caitlin really needs to stay on and do a phd when she's done with her <laughs> master's what do you think well, eric we were chatting about this a little bit uh before the the recording started while we were waiting for you to uh, to get online and connect and uh no, can totally agree. There's there's also the Caitlin you were sharing the the question of, you know, how valuable is doing comparisons to really get a a uh, a firm handle on what this entire field is about you know, and coming mm -hmm. up from from that perspective as well. I see. Getting that job experience first to know which questions are important to actual examiners. Hey, that's what you did, Glenn. It is what I did, but accidentally. True. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your research. We've done so many episodes about blood prints and about activity level propositions. You know, this kind of adds to that, to that growing number of episodes on this topic and, you know, explores just what we're learning and what, how much more there is to learn on this topic. So it's just, you know, thanks so much for, uh, for, joining us and, and chatting about. Thank you so much for having me. It was really interesting to talk to other people about my research and getting other takes on that. Yeah. And I, and I can say as a personal thank you, because I mean, when I worked with Nicole on this as an intern, it's just, it's, it's always just so nice to see other people coming at the research. You know, you were able to confirm some things that we had observed, but then also introduce new variables into the equation, the different mechanisms and so forth. And, you know, your observations with swipes, for example, versus some of the drips and spatter, which I thought I thought was great. It's like taking a song and, you know, putting your spin to it and, you know, singing in, in, a, in, a, in a different style. And I, I really appreciated that. And that, again, just that's what science is all about. I think that's great. And thank you for that contribution to the field. All right. Well, wrap up the episode now. Uh, so first off, it looks like I'll be doing an exclusion class here in the spring in April, and uh, I'll have more information out here in the next uh, few weeks and months about how to sign up for that. And if you have any questions for us, or if you want us to forward any questions on to Caitlin, please email us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. The opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone they might work for. And with that, we'll close out and say goodbye, and, and thanks for, uh, for listening again. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Bye, everyone. Have a good week.